right, now to pick up today where we left off last time uh, in this important discussion of the interpretation as assuming the role of the implied reader. And uh, uh, then I talked about how there in the chapter, chapter 11, how the reader is formed in a community, and that community's ideas, thoughts, and so on form your second text, and that brings you into conformity with the implied reader of that text. And so we talked about the uh, uh, regulae, plural of regula fidei, as the statement of the basic uh, teaching of the apostles that is congruent with, but not drawn from the scriptures. I mean, you, I guess you would say the reguli would have been drawn in some measure from the scriptures. They would have been using apostolic teaching, which was oral and which was written. And so this enshrines that. But it is not, it is not uh, like saying that these reguli or the creeds like the Apostles' Creed are specifically drawn from scripture in the sense that they opened up the Bible and drew the stuff out of there. Now, in this, we're anticipating a little bit, but this next point now is extremely important. That's the essential difference between something like the Reguli or the Apostles' Creed on one hand and our Lutheran confessions on the other hand. Now, in chapter 14 of the book, which talks about confessional interpretation, and we won't be able to get to that in the course, and Chuck Aaron picks that up anyway in the systematics course, but to give you the basic idea here, the confessions perform this same flywheel kind of function or organizing of your attention function, but with this significant difference. The confessions manifestly, self-expressedly declare that they are drawn from the scriptures. So that's why we use that, that phrase, norma normata, the normed norm. Thus, the confessions are not norma normans, the norming norm. That is the scriptures, but they are norma normata, a perfect passive participle in Latin. Normed norm. Now, uh, uh, we can get on to that some more. But I, I used the analogy last time of the fine wool gown that uh, Joe gets for his wife, Nicole, and about the swatches of cloth and how the swatches of cloth have two functions. They have a canonical function to determine whether or not the dress that you get back from the cleaners is actually legit, and they have an interpretive function, that is to say, saying what its qualities are like, how you can treat the fabric, and so on, like the interpretive function that the, uh, that the reguli have. Now, what is the relationship, then, between the oral preaching of the apostles, which we would see enshrined in the reguli, and the written teaching of the apostles, which we see in, let's say, the books of the New Testament. And how did those impact the church? Well, as I see it, Essentially, it's kind of like this, quantitatively. Let's take a church like Corinth or Rome. Now, let's take Corinth. We just stick with Corinth. Paul made a number of visits to Corinth, at least three. Then, 
he wrote probably four letters. We have, um, uh, we have two of them, which would probably be effectively 2nd and 4th Corinthians. <clears throat> Paul spent some time in Corinth himself as he was on his second missionary journey. So you might say that they have a written experience of Paul and an oral personal experience of Paul. And this oral personal experience would actually be a lot more extensive than what he wrote. Now it seems to me that what basically has happened down through the years is the following. As the presence of the apostles personally recedes, diminishes, disappears, the importance of their written witness increases. Thus, early on, the people are going to be kind of riding on what he said to them personally when he was with them, like 2 Thessalonians 2. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? He uses that actually as a touchstone for his writing. He doesn't say, by the way, all that stuff I said to you, I mentioned this to you uh, last time, all the stuff I said to you orally, uh, Take that with a grain of salt and view it against what I'm writing to you now on the papyrus. You know, he's not doing that. Basically, he is using his oral presentation and his physical presence as their touchstone. But as the years pass, it seems to me then that essentially the written and the oral reverses its relationship. As the apostles pass from the scene, and their personal witness is no longer experienced, their written witness becomes more and more important. So that, look at the bottle. Now the oral side is just really little, and the written side is big. That's sort of where we are, with having records of the reguli. Okay, we got some of those. But what's really critical is the written deposit of the apostolic witness in the books of the New Testament, let's say. So, um, what's key is what is apostolic. That's what's key. What is apostolic? <clears throat> and now the question is, where do you access that apostolic witness? Early on, you talk to people who heard the apostles, or maybe you heard them yourself. Early on, it's the oral experience more than the written. I mean, who knows? Let's say that you lived in a place that what we would call now Constantinople. I mean, that's a late name, Byzantium. Well, Paul didn't write a letter to that city. See, maybe you never, in fact, got a letter of Paul's. You just got the oral preachment. So it's certainly possible that early on this could have simply survived here. Or, oh, this is a better example. Take the, the villages from Paul's first missionary journey. Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Well, there's no letter to Iconia, I, Iconium. There's no letter to Derby and Lystra. See? So they had the experience of him, but they didn't have that letter, let's say, unless somebody forwarded the letter to the Ephesians or something like that to them. Now, I'm going to give you a handout. Josh, will you help me here? <clears throat> and this is going to be going up uh, on the web also. 
that provides a, a sort of a summary of what we've talked about now, but puts it in a little different context. Because now we have the issue of sola scriptura, scripture alone. And here is a little different take on this. I think you're going to find this helpful. A little different take than is normally presented on this topic. I'd ask you to get your Bibles out here. And uh, Now, I prepared this paper initially in response to a presentation given at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, uh, by a Roman Catholic priest on the issue of tradition in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Now, so it's within that context. A, introduction. The Reformers' concern was the increasing diminution of the voice of the Scriptures at the time of the Reformation. Obscuring Scripture's voice. Ideas from developing traditions had gained prominence, and pronouncements from authorities seemed alien to the Scripture's content. You know, I'm thinking of something like indulgences or something like that. Then, stifling of the Scripture's voice. Access to the Scriptures had become limited. That is to say, not everybody could get his hands on them. Bibles were locked in uh, areas of churches and so forth. And interpret two, interpretations were increasingly restricted to the church's magisterium, to the papacy, to the cardinals, to what is commonly called the teaching magisterium of the church. The reason for the concern... The apostolic message of the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ seemed to be obscured when the voice of the Scriptures was diminished. Now, this is a little different take, as I say, than you'd normally get, but let's take a look. Basic Reformation understanding uh, of the Scriptures and their importance. Look where I start under B1. The apostles were the fully empowered ambassadors of our Lord. Now, there are some very interesting passages in this regard. Take a look just at 2 Corinthians 5.20. And now here in 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Greek's kind of important because there's a host plus the participle clause. Now, Paul says, On behalf of Christ, therefore, presboyamen, we are ambassadors, now, the host goes with the participle. You can see I've underlined it in my book. And that gives, the host plus the participle, gives the understanding under which the person is speaking. So, with the understanding that God is exhorting through us, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here's Paul's understanding, that he actually is a fully empowered ambassador speaking for God. Now let's look at the second point on the outline under B2. As such, the apostles and their proclamation and teaching were and are the foundation of Christ's church. Now folks, this is the key point to my presentation right now. That the apostles and their proclamation are the foundation of the church. See 1 John. Now, 1 John, which is, you'll remember from our previous discussion, considered one of the homologumina. 1, 1 to 3, and he says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyeballs, which we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, jump down to three, that which we have seen and have heard, and note the perfect tenses. So we've seen it. We're still aware of it. We've heard it. The words are with us yet. We proclaim also to you guys. Milwaukee, Southside. In order that also you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship, koinonia, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice, 
The apostles are so key that he says, we're proclaiming this to you that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God. No way around the apostles. This is a surprising passage in that it doesn't say, we're proclaiming this that you may have fellowship with God or something like that. So notice I'm putting as the key issue here the apostolic primacy. And so I've got this nota bene. This shows the critical orientation. Key is the proclamation and teaching of the apostles, the authoritative eyewitnesses. Number three. This authoritative proclamation or teaching was given by the apostles either in person or through their writings. And here's that second Thessalonians passage. That's not 2-2, it's 2-5, where he talks about... um, uh, oh, well, no, no, actually, this is a little different. Hold on. 2 Thessalonians 2.5, go to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, it, it is, <clears throat> yeah, it is 2.5, and then I'm going to come back to 2.2. So, 2.5, I've even circled it in my text. Do you not remember that still being by you, these things I was saying to you? While I was still with you, I was saying these things. Now, Keep your Bibles open there, because now we're coming to the next point. And on your page, you might just want to circle point four. You might just want to circle point four. This is now the key move of this paper. For those among whom an apostle was not physically present, the authoritative apostolic testimony was to be found in their writings. Folks, I've never seen anybody argue this point before. But I think it is manifestly clear from the New Testament. Thus, in Colossians 4.16, you don't have to look that up, he says, when you've read this letter have it read by the Laodiceans, and the one I wrote to the Laodiceans, you have it read by you. See, he doesn't say, tell the Laodiceans what I said, or listen to what they were talking about. When when he's not present, his writings are of especial importance. Now take a look at the next reference, 2 Thessalonians 2.2. Now it says here, starting in 1, We ask you, brothers, on behalf of the parousia, the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering to him, that you not quickly be shaken, you you skies, be shaken, from the mind, nor be disturbed. Now look what he says. Neither through a spirit, a pneuma, nor through a lugu, word, or I would take that to mean argument. Logos does not normally mean word. It normally means account or argument. Nor through an epistle as though through us. So there are three things that would sway them. A spiritual revelation kind of argument, an argument rhetorical presentation, and then a letter as though through Paul, which is exactly the way he would be authoritative, so to speak, at a distance. So now we get to number five. Therefore, as the repository of the voice of the absent apostles, the sacred scriptures are the source and norm of Christian faith and life, especially for succeeding generations. Now look what I've put up on the board. This is why I said, as the presence of the apostles recedes, their written witness increases in its importance. And they understood that in their own lives. All right, now, we go on. 
see what this does not mean. Now, what I'm saying right here is different than you would tend to get in a presentation on this. This does not mean that there is no place other than the Scriptures that apostolic proclamation and teaching can be found. In fact, the so-called reguli fidei, what we've been talking about, the rules of faith, of the earliest Christian communities also preserve apostolic doctrine. Guys, you just got to admit this. Okay? Next, turn it over. This also does not mean that the Scriptures are a self-contained unit in such a way that no other book or resource is to be used in their interpretation. Dictionaries, grammars, and so on aid in understanding what the books are saying and do not determine its content. The reguli fidei also serve an interpretive function, see below. So, sola scriptura does not mean nuda scriptura. Okay? It doesn't mean that you don't read anything else except the Bible. I mean, my favorite example, as noted here, is nobody learns Greek and Hebrew from the Bible. You either learn it from somebody else orally, or you have a Greek book, or you have a Hebrew text, or something like that, but you don't simply do your grammar only by looking at the pages of the Old and New Testament. So this, of course, raises the question that we've been wrestling about. That's point D now. The Reformation understanding of tradition and Scripture. The reguli fidei. At this point, this is going to sort of duplicate what we've just talked about, but I'm putting it in a little different context now. I'm putting it over against the Scriptures. As noted above, the rules of faith also preserve the apostolic proclamation and teaching. These reguli are local creeds, virtually proto-apostles' creeds, drawn from both the oral proclamation of the apostles and the scriptures. Thus they are congruent with the apostolic scriptures and probably represent something like, quote, this is my translation, the prescribed form or standard of teaching Paul mentions in Romans 8.16. Now, take a look at that in the Greek. This is a kind of a famous passage, and as you're going to that, let me just tell you, this is a kind of a famous passage in that in one of Paul's clear books, Romans, Romans is clearly a Pauline text, nobody would dispute that, here he has a specific, what would you say, a, a specific reference to doctrinal standards. Now, see, people say, oh, that's kind of late. You see that in the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles are post-Pauline and so on. No, no. Right here in Romans. Take a look at Romans 6. Paul says, grace or thanks to God because you were slaves of sin, but obeyed from the heart unto which you were handed over. What did you obey from the heart? The type or standard or prescribed form, the tupon didaches, the standard of teaching unto which you were handed over. Now look at that form, par edothe te. That's the great word... Paradidomi for the official handing over in tradition discussions. Okay? Official handing it down in tradition. Now, typos means type or standard, or note how I've, uh, I've translated, translated it for you here the prescribed form of teaching. I'm thinking that that is kind of like a regular. Kind of like a regular. So that's 
the statement of the basics of the faith. Now, I want you to look at this little paragraph after the space. And this this takes the discussion in a little bit different direction than what we were saying yesterday. The reguli are not, however, the equal of the scriptures in at least two respects. First, each regula was a local creedal expression and was not universally confessed as were and are the scriptures. So especially with the homologumina, they were everywhere and always seen as the word of God. Apostolic preaching. The reguli would have been affirmed, but there would be one in Ephesus and another one very similar in Corinth and so on. So they didn't quite have the same universality. Second, the reguli, and by the way, you guys pointed this out in your papers and so on, and Ficken pointed this out before. The reguli are extremely limited in scope, providing only a basic skeleton, as it were, of this Christian faith. Now, as I tried to emphasize last time, this isn't necessarily a horrible thing. (laughs) They do have some really basic stuff, born of a virgin, risen bodily, I mean, uh, coming to back, coming back to judge the world uh, bodily, ascended bodily, and so on like that. But you couldn't say that the reguli are, in that sense, as complete or whatever. You know, it doesn't tell you anything about meat sacrifice to idols or anything like that in the reguli. However, this gets on to what we said yesterday, or Monday, the functions of the reguli. They do, however, and did perform two important and helpful functions. They aid in the interpretation of Scripture. That's like the example, Joe, where the swatch helps you to understand the nature and the content of the dress. And they aid in the identification of the boundaries of Scripture. That's the canonical function. And that's like you can identify whether the genuine dress was sent back from the cleaners. Now, the differences to the Roman Catholic understanding of tradition, and that's where I said, it's like the same families in charge of the mill, but now they're making wool and rayon blends. They're not making the genuine thing. So, final statement then of the Reformation understanding of Scripture and Tradition, point E. In the sacred scriptures we hear, and we can be sure that we hear, the true authoritative voice of the apostles. This voice declares to us the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus and gives us fellowship with God in Christ. Hence the Reformation allegiance to Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Now, I want you to notice something extremely important at this point, and this is deliberate. At no point on that piece of paper and at no point in my discussion last time did I ever bring up inspiration and inerrancy. And I'll tell you why. Because it's not a matter of inspiration by the Spirit. The Spirit inspired all kinds of stuff in the early church. The Spirit inspired prophets. The Spirit inspired martyrs like Stephen. It's not a question of inspiration. It's a a question of authoritative voice. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. We're not thinking, and he says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, He talks about words taught by the Holy Spirit. I'm not denying that question, sorry, that connection. I'm not denying that connection. What I am saying is that's not the critical connection. The critical connection is apostolic authority. And that is exactly why it says in Ephesians 
that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the idea of that. Not it's built on people who spoke inspiredly when they were influenced in writing or something like that. So this is absolutely key if you are involved, you see, in a dispute with Roman Catholic representatives. They're happy to have a discussion of inspiration with you because the papacy is seen as inspired. It's led by the Spirit. Here's the problem. Wool rayon blend. It's not fully apostolic. Now this is why, in general, Lutheran interpreters have, strangely enough, in the minds of most people, have placed the Roman Catholic understanding of authority in the same boat as um, the spirit-inspired Schwermer of the 16th century, the Radical Reformation, with people like Martin Bootser, who claimed that they were being led directly by the Spirit. Interestingly enough, the Lutheran position stands in the middle between being led by the Spirit immediately, Martin Bootser and the Radical Reformation, and the Roman Catholic Church, which has enshrined that being led by the Spirit in the papacy. And our contention is, we stand on the foundation of the apostolic witness. So you can talk all you want about current leading by the Spirit. The fact of the matter is, we can't teach anything that is in, I'll use a big term here, broad term, incongruent with the apostolic witness. Thus, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, in its exaltation of Mary, and it's, I mean, they very finely honor her and so forth. But when they start making statements such as that Mary is the foundation of the new humanity, because as Eve tied the knot of sin, so Mary undoes, unties the knot of sin tied by Eve. It's a really interesting thought and maybe worth taking a look at. Unfortunately, the apostolic scriptures don't argue like that. They argue that the new humanity is in Christ. And it's not Eve's problem, it's Adam's problem. You have Adam as representing the old creation and Christ with the new creation. As in Adam all died, so in Christ will all be made alive. See? So, my contention in something like this, it's not that some stuff couldn't be possible, it's that you cannot be sidelining the apostolic witness which gives you the actual authoritative proclamation of the eyewitnesses and the earwitnesses who said, you receive our teaching and your fellowship will be with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, with something like the Reguli providing canonical and interpretive functions, as we said in the paper I handed out yesterday, and also in this paper here as well. And then this allows us to address the issue of Scripture interprets Scripture. Scriptura, Scripturae, interpret, Scripturam, 
interpretator. Scripture interprets scripture. Well, again, it doesn't mean, it's like sola scriptura, it doesn't mean nuda scriptura. Or as if when you interpret, a verse is going to leap off the page and go to a different verse. So you don't have, if you're worried about the interpretation of Romans 6 and you're wondering about this, it doesn't happen that something goes like, and this page comes over or something. That doesn't happen. What you've got to have is somebody who is assuming the role of the implied reader, imbued with the regula and so forth, actually doing this. But it does mean that the apostolic stuff is interpreting the apostolic stuff. Okay, so all of these formulations, sola scriptura, scriptura scripturam interpretator, scripture interprets scripture, all of those kinds of formulations are formulated over against the Roman Catholic understanding that you have an independent development of tradition which is spirit-led and which now takes over the, you know, kind of subsumes the apostolic tradition and the scriptures. And not only from the outside interprets, but can actually sort of move beyond them. See, you've you've got to understand that our basic fight with Rome, and I'm spending some time on this now, because once I bring regula fidei into the mix, I'm bringing non-scriptural stuff, I'm bringing traditional stuff, and so the immediate question then is, well, how come that's not like Roman Catholicism in tradition? It's because they're not really interested in maintaining specifically apostolic tradition. They want, they're quite pleased with successor, spirit-led, developmental tradition. Hence, the wool-rayon blend. See? So there is something fundamentally different between the reguli and traditions and developments and understandings that are unfolding and so on, which claim to be spirit-led, you know. Uh, which the Roman church would have. Um, Okay, any questions on this, either on the paper, on the approach of the paper, or on this basic issue? Josh. With the church in India that would not have been receiving the letters of Paul and being kind of geographically isolated from everybody else, what role does the regula fide have there, the teachings of, I believe it was Timothy, and how does that alter their development as a Christian church in comparison? Oh, you mean uh, Thomas? Thomas, Thomas. Well, I don't know the answer to, to what that would do to India. I mean, I, I would have to say this, that what we would consider as the reguli, I would think would have to norm what they're doing. Yeah, I, I would think. And, and the reguli are pretty standard around, you know. So if all of a sudden they had something off the beam or something like that, I think you could say, I don't know how much you want to uh, claim that Thomas is doing this, but this doesn't look congruent because these things have got to be be, uh, congruent with the other apostolic teaching. But do you know when the Christian missionaries or traders started coming into contact with the church after being isolated for a while, was there differences between the two? I don't know the answer to that. Don't know the answer to that. I was kind of wondering what encompasses the regular fide. Fide, yeah. So, I mean, like if something that Irenaeus said in his writings, is that considered no. part of that? Because he's so close to the apostle. No, it's got to be an actual statement of a regular, like that one that's on the paper that I handed out yesterday. Where, you know, and we confess that, and then, you know, not just, him sort of talking about stuff. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And it's so that it's something that is more than an individual opinion. But when I presented this in response to the Roman Catholic presentation, that kind of came up, saying, well, you know, Irenaeus says such and such. Yeah, but there's a difference between private opinion and when the church is actually taking a stand on something. And I, I think that I would want to make that, that, that sort of disclaimer there. I mean, you know, it's similar to Peter not eating with the Gentiles in Galatians 2. So everything that a guy like Peter did was not an apostolic deed or something like that. But when he's sort of acting apostolically, then I think that's different. I don't know how you determine all that exactly. But there, there are these actual statements that are made by the communities that heard the apostles and so forth. Yeah. Okay, Andy. Do we have any other records that aren't uh, found in scripture, manuscripts of things the apostles would have said? Oh, well, we have, uh, we have variant, this would be a, actually a pretty good example. We have variant readings in isolated manuscripts, for example, of sayings of Jesus. So my favorite one is in Luke 6, 4 from manuscript D, where it says, Jesus was going along and saw a man working on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, O man, if you know what you are doing, blessed are you. But if you do not, you are accursed. See, you know, meaning, if you know that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, right on. If you're just blowing off the Sabbath, no, that's not good. See? Now, did he say something like that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like he could have. But I don't think it's basically authoritative because you find one record of something someplace. You know, it's got to be a little bit more public than that. Um, something that would be similar is Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in uh, uh, John 8, 752 and following. Um, you know, you have that. It's in a couple of minor manuscripts. Um, well, actually, Andy, yeah, here's an interesting one. In Acts 20, when Paul is giving his goodbye to the Ephesian elders, this is a great one. He says, <clears throat> as our Lord said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you all know that statement. Well, that appears no place in the Gospels. So, see, there had to be independent preservation of these, you know, uh, of these words and of these traditions. And, and what I would say, kind of in answer to your question, the reguli essentially preserve that for us. You know, remember how that one started? Um, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all that is it. Well, see, I imagine that's exactly what they said, you know, that they included the seas and all that was in them and so forth. Um, you know, just like always happens, guys, when you're a Lutheran, and that is you're always, uh, Oz, as you'd say in New York, you're always trying to avoid Scylla and Charybdis, okay? You're trying to avoid dangers on opposite hands. The one danger is, and by the way, you can see how this is just a lead-up to the second half of this chapter on the Holy Spirit and where that is, the one danger is you just play the trump card of the Holy Spirit all the time. The other one is you get caught in the tradition card. All right? Somehow you got to balance both of these things. And this is why this class tries to take a real detailed and deep look at this question because this is the question you keep coming up against, is how do you know what's your authority? You know, why is it that you're not using the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that? Well, um, this is the whole apostolic thing. Now, what we're going to do here, we're uh, heading toward the last roundup here on the, on the hour. Uh, let me just take a look at a couple of your papers. And then for next time, we're going to be 
uh, dealing with that issue of the role of the Holy Spirit, which I think is, is equally critical to this one, because pious Lutheran people tend to simply use that as your ultimate backup trump card. You have all this great mumbo-jumbo about hermeneutics and all this kind of stuff, and finally when the going gets tough, we've got to be led by the Spirit. Well, that's not the answer. I mean, it's not, it's not like that. The Spirit's got a role, but it's not a trump card role. <clears throat> all right, but before we get on to that for next time... Um, Let's take a look at some of these questions uh, that you've got. Uh, Seth, I thought this was very interesting that you quoted in your summary Psalm 102 when you talked about whether or not the implied reader could be someone that the apostle didn't know or future generations. And this is the passage that Seth quoted. The author writes, let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Yeah, that's, so you, you have a sense of people beyond your immediate audience. That was nice. I appreciated that. All right, Steve. <clears throat> Could it be said that creeds, and let's add the reguli in here, in terms of their legitimacy to correct Christian interpretation, communicates the implied reader's matrix. Yes. Yes. See, that gives you sort of the essential matrix of what the apostolic witness was. Right. And, you know, for example, it helps you to see that stuff like meat sacrifice to idols, um, monetary contributions to the temple or to God are not central to apostolic teaching. They're not in there. Helps you to weed that stuff out. <clears throat> okay. Mark Adrian, what hermeneutical principles did they use before the creeds were formed uh, in order to form the creeds? Well, the reguli. You know, the oral preachment, basically the creeds would have been the reguli getting kind of more formalized with the scriptures. This is good. <clears throat> now, my second question, he says, what properly defines a creedal Christian community? I know many denominations that confess the creeds, but have different views of scripture. Don't be so optimistic, Adrian. There are a whole bunch of people who actually don't confess creeds that are anti-creedal. Baptists are an example of this. They manifestly do not confess creeds. Now, they actually have their own creeds. I mean, they would have a whole list of things that you had to believe. But they would be anti-creedal. Now, what you'd have to say, and I tried to make this point last time, the creeds do cover only the basics. And the reguli do cover only the basics. However, especially in our day, that's still pretty darn useful when you have arguments over the bodily resurrection of Jesus, virgin birth, will he come again in judgment, all real basic questions. So, as I think I mentioned, Maybe this isn't so critical in 1955, but it is now. Chris, certainly not all interpretations within these communities can be incongruent with the intended meaning of the author, or are they? Is this an issue of how we define creedal understanding of those scriptures by the historic Christian church or something else? Different creedal understandings will impact one's interpretive matrix keys, the canon within a canon. So it seems that the concluding sentence needs to be narrowed. Yeah, you're on to something here. And uh, let, let's pick up Malachi's thing and then yours. The creeds, I think, what they do um, is they help you with the canon within a canon and how to matrix the stuff. Now, if you interpret the creeds differently, you've pushed this thing back one, you know, one more thing. And that's what you're pointing out. 
But I want to just get on this, this point, how your paper relates to his. You can, you can basically see what's critical by what the reguli talk about. You know, so it helps you to get, like for example, all of the various items in the Sermon on the Mount do not find their way into a regular. All right, thank you. Um, ah, yes. Now, this relates to what I said before. This is from Ozzy. It seems to me that the best Lutheran example of text within our community that helps to interpret Scripture is the Lutheran Confessions. As a road map, good Chuck Aaron word, this would make the most sense as our hermeneutical key. Right. Just re- recognizing they are drawn from the Scriptures, not this kind of apostolic independent thing. But you are absolutely correct about that. That's good. All right. Uh, this is uh, Andy. Where is the line between Christian and non-Christian? Is it simply the creeds? I think you could take the word simply out of there. Uh, seems too vague. Do Mormons and JWs pledge allegiance to the creeds? Well, I hope not. No, I, they don't. And uh, neither do Baptists and a whole bunch of other people. I mean, you don't realize how, how actually different that is. And we take them pretty much at face value. Things like bodily ascension and coming again to judge the living and the dead. You know, I, I'm not sure that some bodies would take it that way. Um, then there are a couple of very interesting things we're going to have to quit here. Uh, but let me just acknowledge this paper. This was Joe's, who talked about <clears throat> would our understanding of implied reader be applied to the Quran and Muslims? Will a Muslim have a better understanding of the intended meaning of the Quran because they are part of that community? Yeah, yeah, in, in some sense. This is where you get, you know, that, uh, that second thing about the Spirit where you adopt belief the role of the Holy Spirit, the second chart, that might be relevant to this. So we'll maybe return to that. All right, thank you very much, guys. This is an absolutely terrific set of questions here. So for tomorrow, we're going to go on to uh, the role of the Spirit, and then I want you to take a look at Addendum 11 a, is that the next thing on the sheet? Yeah, and that's the whole thing about inspiration and inerrancy and that kind of stuff. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that uh, and because i got to get on to, for next week Monday, Addendum 11b, which is going to be the most important thing in terms of the content of the Scriptures. Okay, see you tomorrow.